This episode of AD History is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast and the exclusive benefits that await you for your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD History you deserve by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered why Rome didn't like Christianity to begin with? Or how exactly that dislike of Christianity led to the formation of a country still on our planet today? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, today is the beginning of Season 4. And, of course, we're also coming off of an additional week hiatus. How are you? I am good, Paul. I think the week off did us both incredibly well. Um, I think we're getting the audience well as well. We just finished the crisis of the third century. We just finished the third century AD. A break was due, I think, is definitely what I can say there. But we're back. We're back in the fourth century and the crisis might be over, but Rome is still ticking on to some degree, Paul, I would say. But we've still got this going. We've got some really exciting stuff coming up in this century and in this episode especially. We certainly do. And yeah, Rome is still chugging along, still doing its thing. You know, it's going to make a brief appearance in here because we have a little bit of building to do on some important stuff that's going to be happening going forward, no doubt. And that's really exciting. I'm also looking forward to getting into other stuff this season. That's one of the things I liked about what we did in the regards to what we missed is that in addition to it covering what we missed, it's also portending and forecasting some of the stuff that we're going to be doing in this season going forward. But before we get to any of that, there's really some really cool and awesome news that you have to share. And so just for the time being, for this opening, (laughs) share your incredibly interesting and cool development. Yep. So guys, it wouldn't be a podcast. I'm sure you've listened to many podcasts where people plug their book and it's no difference here. So uh, a while back, I released my first book, The Origin of Names, Words and Everything in Between. There is a follow-up book now available, guys. The Origin of Names, Words, and Everything in Between, Volume 2. Very creative name, I know, I know, guys. But it's more of the same good stuff in there. It's full of all new subject areas. We cover first names in there, body of water names, historic places, tree names, plant names, you name it. Website names are in there. And all of this stuff is explained in a simple, easy-to-understand, easy-to-read way. So you read it. You can enjoy it easily, read whatever you want, read it from back to front, pick a segment, read along. Paul, you very much enjoyed the first one, and I hope you enjoyed the second one. Yes, indeed. As press, I got a complimentary copy. I hope I get one again. But uh, I'll work on it. I'm working on it. Uh, it's in digital, in digital. I don't, you know, mm. not looking to, to take the, the pounds oh, from I'm your pocket. But no, the thing I'm curious about here, Patrick, because this is kind of part of the way you and I first met. I interviewed you over at TGNR, and you were just seriously getting underway in writing the manuscript for the first edition, the first time out, your first volume. And I'm curious how 
this process was different than the first time you did it? I would say it was easier in some ways. A lot of lessons learned from the first uh, draft to the second, like from, from, from writing the first volume to writing the second volume. Like what? I'd say one of the main things is understanding the process of publication, which I won't reveal too much about here, but knowing what came next into what publication, but understanding how it was, how the copywriting theories, how the proofreading uh, segment works, understanding all that, and just understanding how to write a book more. And of course, th that first book came out in 2018. So it's three years since that first book came out. My September writing style. Yeah, my writing style has changed immensely since then. So. This book, I feel, is a bit more elegant at points, a bit more explanations are involved with it. I go on more tangents, much like my, how my videos have changed over on Name Explain, how they're longer and talk about things in more detail. I feel this book goes into more detail and bits and bobs that just didn't really happen in the first one. Well, that is awfully interesting. And the other thing I'm going to ask before we move on to the show is, why were you compelled to make a second volume? So the first book was turning about two years old when I first got the idea of it. And it was going pretty well. So it must have been late 2020. Yeah, late 2020 was when I sort of first started getting it. And the second book, enough time had passed on that first book coming out where I didn't see it as a thing I created, but just seeing it as a book that was available for me to read even. I thought, you know what, this isn't too terrible. I think if you're a creator of any capacity, you need some time to distance yourself. You don't see it as something you made anymore. You see it as just a thing to enjoy in the way you do any other book or any other YouTube video. And I sort of read it and thought, this is quite fun, this book. I, I wouldn't mind writing another one. And so I got in contact with my publishers at Mango and said, hey, why don't we do a second book? And they were kind enough to say, yeah, let's do it. So I got to work. I think I wrote the majority of it in the deepest parts of lockdown. So I look back at that time like, gosh, it was kind of the ideal time to write a book, I presume. You know, when they literally can't go outside, I'm actually have to stay in and write because there's nothing else to do. I'm legally not allowed to go outside and enjoy myself. So that was kind of a blessing in its own little way. Of course, I'd rather the world and the UK wasn't put into a lockdown in early 2021, but this book probably wouldn't be what it, what it is without it. Fair enough. When is the official release date? Where can they find it? And in what forms will it be available? So the official release date is the 12th of October, 2021. And I believe by the time you'll listen to this, the book will be out now. It is available in all major format. It's available in a real copy and paperback. It's available on ebook from Kindle or wherever you get your ebooks from. It's available on Audible. The guy, John Cowley, he's spoken this second book as well. You can understand why I haven't read the audiobook version because I can barely speak, as you guys can tell right now. So he's a trained voice person. He's very good at it. And the best way to find a book is by searching Word Origins Book into Amazon and clicking the non-sponsored link for the book. That helps Amazon's own SEO, the search algorithm, and it helps more people discover the book. So if you want to find the book, the best way to do it is by searching Word Origins book on Amazon and clicking the non-sponsored link. However, there I'm sure there'll be other links. You guys are pretty smart. Just search Patrick Foot. just search Origin Names, whatever between, wherever you buy your books from. Just check wherever you buy books from. I'm sure it'll be available there. I remember one of the first things I asked you about when I found out that your first volume was also an audiobook form, why it is that you didn't do it yourself. Because naturally, in so many ways, Patrick from Name Explain is, for the longest time in your channel, as I recall, was a voice, in addition to having your own kind of self-avatar that you illustrated yourself. And the thing I didn't appreciate at the time that I think you and I can both really appreciate now is just how difficult it is to do that long-form narration, especially you're talking about over 5, 10, 15, or sometimes 20 hours or more. It's a very difficult thing to do. 
It is, Paula. Now, we've been doing this podcast for, what, two years now or so, just over two years? I'm sure now you fully understand why I don't do those books. Being a voice artist is an absolute skill. John Cowley is an absolute professional, and he reads my books to a T. Well, that is beautiful stuff. And once again, congratulations. And now everybody knows where they can find it. And yep. with all of that wonderful stuff out of the way, we'll lay down our necessary obligatory, now legendary, AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Paul, the 4th century AD. And there's going to be one big event that's going to overshadow the 4th century. And that is, of course, going to be Rome's conversion to Christianity. However, Roman Christianity didn't begin on the best of terms at the beginning of this century. And you're going to explain to us just what bad terms they were on. And thank you, Sir Patrick. And yes, you are quite right in many regards. But with that all in mind, I think it is best to set the scene. As we so well documented in our first season of the AD History Podcast, we talked about the birth, life, work, crucifixion, and immediate legacy of Jesus of Nazareth, also known as Jesus Christ or simply Christ. And his story afterwards, in terms of the religion that ultimately came of it, is extremely complex, and it's coalescing into a greater Christianity across the world occurs over centuries. And coming up in this fourth century, specifically in the Roman Empire, it's going to take its first major boost to becoming a very big player on the religious stage as well as the political power stage, when one known as Constantine the Great officially, personally converts to Christianity and the empire shortly thereafter follows. But that's not today. Today is in preparation for that, because that turbulent history between the death of Jesus of Nazareth and today takes many long and different and many times highly ambiguous turns in its history. Because it goes from what is a small vanguard of followers that are there, the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, as it organically spreads throughout the Mediterranean world into all corners of it over centuries. It doesn't necessarily have an universalist evangelical mission, certainly not for all of them, to be sure. Many times, especially in early Christianity, you're talking about small enclaves of Christian communities around the Mediterranean. But over time, it begins to, once again, organically on its own momentum, begin to pick up steam. And we've discussed part of this in our rather popular episode about who wrote the Gospels, being hmm. one such relative issue that comes up in early Christianity. But one thing that can't be denied, and I think something that's generally well known, though perhaps not in immense detail, perhaps, is the relationship between Christianity in its early period and the Roman Empire. And it's a very difficult relationship at times, and one that ebbs and flows and has a variety of complications to it. And it's not the easiest part of history to really nail down. 
because some of the sources have, as you can imagine, very pointed reasons to be writing what they're writing. They have their own outlook and their own general intentions. I think you kind of follow where I'm going with this, Patrick. Mm. And so here in 301 AD to 310 AD, we're sitting on the precipice of Constantine's the Great Damascene set of events. Whatever the exact truth of those events were at the Milvian Bridge, we will discuss in an upcoming episode, leading not only to his conversion to Christianity, but later the empire as a whole, as we mentioned. Christianity's history as practiced in the Roman Empire experienced a highly precarious existence. There was never one consistent policy by the Romans toward Christianity, or any other non-Roman religion, to be sure, and hence they had better times than they did other times in the time following the death of Jesus of Nazareth. And the fact is that most of the time, their treatment very much depended on a number of factors. If you want to start at the very top, if you were looking purely at the attitude of the emperors, whether it be in the Principate era or now the emperor being effectively the lord of the empire, as it were, under Diocletian, their attitudes also varied. Some were sympathetic, some were generally apathetic, and some were, in many cases, appeared downright nasty. And nothing one would ever really enjoy to think about too much. Needless to say, it came and went. The fact is that most of the time, their treatment depended on not only a given emperor, but a particular locality in terms of their treatment. So where did the initiative for these Christian uh, persecutions originate from Paul? As we know, Diocletian did his thing. What would Diocletian have so much against the Christians? Well, you're kind of asking an interesting bigger question here, because when you look at where does this initiative for Christian persecution originate? The answer is it depended on the time and situation over the, you know, roughly 300 or so years that, of course, mm. our show covers so far. And while there's a lot of attention paid to the attitudes of people like Diocletian, who obviously had a very proactive role at this point, especially towards the end before he decided to step down himself, it was something of an interesting mix that is a little counterintuitive based on how most people view the history, which is to say a lot of people are looking at the attitudes of emperors and they have good reason to. But a lot of these Christian persecutions almost seem like they happen more or less on local levels as opposed to necessarily these great edicts that basically point out the need and directive to persecute Christians for being Christians. And the other thing that's also interesting to point out is that insofar as Christians are persecuted, for the most part, you can also include other non-Roman religions in all of this as well. And what does this really boil down to? Well, a few different things. But basically, to answer this question even more precisely, Patrick, I think the bigger question is, what was the major beef between the Roman pagan gods or an Hellenistic religion, of which it very strongly borrowed from the Greeks, and Christianity? I think it'd be worth mentioning, talking about the word pagan for a moment, because mm. pagan has a very strong image, especially uh, here in the UK. When you say pagan, yeah. you think people dancing around Stonehenge in big floaty dresses with big beards. Pagan just means any religion with multiple gods. So the Roman religion was definitely pagan. So it's just, just worth noting, I think pagan, yeah. it's kind of got this image for itself being almost Wiccan to an extent, but it just literally yes. is a word to describe any religion with multiple gods. I mean, like Hinduism is a pagan religion, 
Greek mythology, Roman mythology is a pagan religion. Especially coming from the perspective of Christianity or yeah. or any of the, really the Abrahamic religions, though I can't really yeah. speak to the other non-Christian ones. So don't take me to court on that. No, I just thought it was worth mentioning because like I said, oh, yeah. to most people, when they hear the word pagan, they think Wiccan, Stonehenge, yeah, big beards, that image. sort of thing. There's yeah. a there's an illustration in one's mind that I think mm. has been almost inadvertently set there for the vast majority of us and it's not hard to understand to be sure you know we're all there yeah 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 i just thought it'd be worth worth sharing that little fact because something i only found out recently myself i completely concur so well i'm sure there are numerous reasons why the inherent conflict existed the most prominent one that seems to keep bearing its head time and again came down to sacrificing to the roman gods interestingly enough and even that's kind of a weird thing but what's interesting is it seems that most of the time, the Romans that were insisting upon this practice were less concerned with the worshippers possessing a genuine belief in their pantheon of gods, but instead were concerned with the rituals themselves, known in Latin as religio, which basically just means ritual or practice, that sort of thing. Unlike in Christianity, this is where the big, at least theologically, there's the big difference here, is because unlike in the case of demonstrating fealty and piety towards these pantheon of Roman gods, Jupiter, and the rest of them. In Christianity, it usually is pretty important not that you simply outwardly perform these rituals, but the belief has to be endogenous and genuine. And when you start getting into this area where Christians are being more or less forced to, despite their religion and its various characteristics, perform this rituals and, and give worship to the Roman gods, this becomes a bit problematic for a number of reasons. One is, of course, the genuine belief aspect of it, which is incredibly important. But the fact of the matter is there were some Christians that were willing to more or less kind of pay that lip service and then just kind of go on and do what they're doing. However, there are some issues here, especially if you start considering how the Ten Commandments might play into this. Now, we're still really early on in terms of formalizing a canon to the Bible, what belongs to it, what's in the New Testament, what's the relationship of the New Testament to the Old Testament or Tanakh, depending on where you're coming from, and all of that. But if you were to look today at the First Commandment, which it basically says, you will have no God before me, and the Ten Commandments most certainly get into things like idolatry and forbidding idolatry in any way that can obscure or diminish from the very first of those commandments, you shall have no God before me, you're going to run into some problems here, especially for the bigger believers of those who did. And we're still not quite at pinning down the exact theological doctrine, at least in a more universal fashion, even though in any religion there's nothing universalist, or everybody has their own shade of it. We're not exactly at Nicaea yet, so we don't have a greater common understanding of what even the divinity of Jesus is supposed to be at this point, or his direct relationship to this God of Abraham in this case. So, Paul, what kind of people were the Christians of Rome, especially around the beginning of the 4th century? What kind of people were they? I remember a while back when we looked at the formation of Christianity in the past. At, like To begin with, Christianity was just sort of like a sect of Judaism to begin with before it sort of became its own thing. Are we, are we still at that point by now? We're definitely moving away from that. Mm. There definitely is divergence between Christians and Jews. 
happens slowly over time because, of course, and it's always necessary to mention this, but, of course, Jesus of Nazareth was a Jew. He was teaching from the Tanakh. That was his understanding. That was his worldview. If you look in the New Testament, you'll see numerous figures from it calling him rabbi, which is just a nice way of calling him teacher. He's a Jew coming from that, but Christianity obviously takes on its whole other thing that diverts from Judaism pretty early. So who are these people, right? And the answer yeah. is, originally, it was always kind of marginalized as this religion of slaves and women. That's their quote, not mine. They would call it and try to diminish it by calling the religion of slaves and women. Well, I guess what? If that were true at any point in time, it ain't true anymore at this point of our show. Something I find so fascinating, especially from mine and your perspective, Paul, we come from countries where Christianity is so dominant, you know, it's the dominant religion of both our nations. And we see it as that. The Christianity is the be all and end all for, in, in the world of religion. So to see Christianity on the back foot, it's kind of odd to an extent because we're, we're so not used to Christianity being the underdog, to being the lesser heard of, to being the forbidden religion in our modern history, in our personal history of our lives, in where we live. And it's just fascinating to see that that has not always been the case. And just to put a little bit of context to that, on our planet today, we have, what, seven and a half billion people, roughly, as the population of Earth? Is it one point, yeah, one point something billion Christians? It's more than that. I believe it's actually over three billion. So it's about yeah. half the planet, if I remember correctly. Off the top of my head, mm. if I'm wrong, lament me to the end of time. Yeah. But ultimately, as I recall, it's about three billion at this point. If you include all the various denominations, you have Roman Catholic, various Protestant, you're looking at about three billion people. And that's a lot. And that's the reason why they're definitely not the underdog and haven't been in a long no. time. Yeah, but to see them in a point of history where they were the underdog is just fascinating. It surely is. So at first, yeah, it's, it's certainly a religion that is not particularly mainstream. It has not initially come about and created huge waves, but that changes, especially by the time of our show, especially because you have people from the upper crust of society in the case of Rome, even for example, senators and senatorial families, if they're not just dipping their finger into the pie of Christianity, have bought in wholesale. So it's definitely come a long way. As I said, they initially like to try to diminish it by calling it as a religion for slaves and women to something that is something else entirely in this case. So it runs the entire gamut, and it's one of the things that really muddies the water in terms of the various persecutions that do exist over Christianity's time being practiced in the Roman Empire and what we call early Christian history. So hopefully that answers your question. Yes, that answers my question, Paul. Thank you. And so when we're getting into all of this, especially when we're talking about the big stuff that's going to come up with Constantine not too long from now, I think it would be particularly helpful to get a flavor of what the reality, as best as we know, as best as scholars have ascertained, you know, nothing is written in stone here because it's a very unusual history, stuff that we can't even all verify, but we'll do the best with what we have. What's this general history look like? And the answer is, well, it ebb and flows over time, as I mentioned. Here's the one big one that I think a lot of people generally jump to, more than any other, in fact, which, of course, is Nero and his scapegoating for the Great Fire of Rome back in the mid-60s AD. And the fact of the matter is he needed a scapegoat. <laughs> There's no question about it. It was a disaster. 
And so as we mentioned all the way back in the first season, we touch upon this, we talk about Tacitus's view of what was happening there. And so, yes, of course, Emperor Nero, following the first great fire of Rome under his watch, decided to use the Christians of Rome as a scapegoat for causing the fire itself. For most folks with eyes to see at the time, though, it was a cynical move undertaken to cover Nero's own ass for the debacle itself. Not hard to figure out by any means. And once again, Tacitus described the circus that occurred under Nero during that time. And while Tacitus was no lover of Christianity, as we talked about back then by any means, he smelled garbage straight away, and he wasn't alone in not buying this. But here's the interesting thing about that particular persecution, as notable and intense and mm. memorable as it was, is that for all historians can tell, that particular scene was largely localized to the city of Rome itself. It didn't necessarily trigger a greater empire-wide persecution which is awfully interesting, to say the least. Because also, and to some degree, why would it? Because the fire of Rome was a Rome local event. So naturally, the people that he had to most worry about were the people that were living directly around him in the case of Nero. But as I also mentioned prior, one of the interesting things about the origin for a lot of these persecutions is it didn't always come from a top-level directive. There are times when these particular events of Christian persecution were, in fact, boiling and undertaken on a far more localized, isolated level when you start getting into the provinces or the cities and things of that nature, where because there is no grander policy and the policy tends to ebb and flow based on whoever's in charge on top, though he doesn't necessarily have the ability to control as much as he'd like to believe he could, there's one very interesting insight right here. This goes on during 177, which I believe is actually still under the reign of one Marcus Aurelius, who, in the case of his feelings towards the Christians, for the most part, historians have a lot of issue trying to pin that down because they're just not sure. It's a strange thing. But in this case, we're talking about a particular incident in Lugdunum, which is actually in modern-day Lyon, France, and this is in 177 AD. And of course, under the rule of Marcus Aurelius, once again, though his policy and his substance regarding Christians in general is definitely not clear by any means, what originally began as a tacit campaign by the authorities, to be sure, in order to consent to what was happening, they were trying to keep Christians out of various aspects of public life. I think one of the more interesting aspects of that is trying to keep them out of the baths. In the case of Lugdunum, also once again known as Lyon. But it didn't stop there, and it grew from there. It turned into illegal Christian persecution, going from this unofficial exclusion to outright legal action against them, being tried and then convicted in the forum. And then basically, you hear all sorts of stories of horrible forms of execution and torture to those Christians themselves. This particular event in question led to what we know today as the Martyrs of Lyon. Based on some of the stories, as I understand it, that's where you start getting some more of the heinous pictures in one's eyes of Roman persecution towards Christians themselves. So, like, were there any emperors who were cool with the Christians, or at least like, sympathetic or indifferent to them? Because it seems like most of them weren't uh, until Constantine himself rocks up. 
seems like most of them weren't the biggest fans. I'm thinking like people like Elagabalus. Was he cool with Christians? That sort of thing. Well, in the case of Elagabalus, I can't talk as much about Elagabalus as I can actually talk about his immediate successor, Severin Alexander. Of course. Okay, yes. And in the case of his mother, his mother had, as far as we can tell, more than one foot in the pool of Christianity. And from what we can tell in regards to the attitude of Severin Alexander himself, he was not unsympathetic. There's an interesting story. We mentioned it very briefly in the episode where we were talking about Severin Alexander extensively, is that on his way back from what was in reality not a great experience for his major campaign out there in the Middle East against the Sassanids, his mother convinced him to allow the famed, now especially, Christian theologian that they call Origen into his court and to learn from him, which I do, in fact, believe ended up happening. So he had a what I would definitely call a more cordial and even open attitude towards Christianity in addition to a more tacit, unofficial tolerance of it. Then you have people like Trajan, for example, who never really had much of a policy towards Christianity. But the reason I mentioned Trajan is there's one very specific letter that he received, and we have the correspondence between him and Pliny the Younger. And Pliny the Younger at the time was a provincial governor in Asia Minor, what we call today Turkey, basically asking, how do I handle this? How do I deal with these people? And he was mentioning that basically through the pressures of the populace, he basically found himself in a position where he was effectively not just convicting, but at sometimes executing Christians outside of the law itself. They weren't breaking any laws, but he felt like he was under public pressure to do so. And Trajan's response was interesting, Patrick, because while it didn't necessarily show any sort of negative attitude towards Christians, his basic feeling was such that, yes, you can execute them, but it has to be done within the confines of the law. Don't allow yourself to be pressured into doing this by the masses. If they have committed some sort of offense within Roman law, then do what is necessary, but don't actively pursue it and don't allow the passions of the public to force you into going in an extrajudicial manner. You kind of follow my thinking on that. And so you're kind of getting this wide variety of insights. You have also somebody like, say, Domitian. And if you remember our bit on Domitian the Despot back in season one, you know that when it came to the Roman pantheon of gods and the Hellenistic religion and what we call Roman paganism, in this case, it was believed based on certain sources towards the end of his reign that he went after them as well because Domitian was basically born again when it came to the pantheon of Roman gods as we understand them today. And so you have this wide variety of attitudes. Then you have somebody like Hadrian, who was a bit more tolerant overall, despite doing some other really heinous stuff that we've discussed at length prior in our show. So it really does run the gamut here, to be sure. And it also very much demonstrates that it comes from the top sometimes, it comes from the bottom quite a bit more, and there's nothing consistent in terms of how Rome is thinking about its Christian population, how seriously they're necessarily taking it, or in any way having what we like to call a long-term cogent policy. In addition to the fact, I think it would be very hard to enact one. But it didn't stop one individual from trying. No, and thank you for saying that, Paul. Hadrian was the one I was interested in myself, because obviously, as you mentioned, 
he wasn't the biggest fan of the Jews as we covered with Sam in great detail. So I was curious yeah. to know what his feeling on the Christians were. And thank you for yeah, explaining that to me. Apparently it was a bit more tolerant as I understand it, but I don't have much more substantively to no, say. No, no. How peculiar. Let's put it this way. Don't look for consistency. No, no. <laughs> That's the weird thing about a lot of these guys, especially when they're effectively sitting there as autocrats with more or less as much power as they wish to wield. That was just kind of the nature of the Principate era, yeah. despite the fact they tried to paint it as something else entirely. So mm. we get to the individual who probably is as famous for his systematic persecutions of Christianity as any emperor that preceded him, even Nero. Because once again, with Nero, it was localized. It had a very specific political purpose in his case. But this is also true of Diocletian. It brings us to the present of our show, specifically 303 AD. And the persecutions of Christianity under Domitian were far better documented than anything else prior. Though for most of his rule, Diocletian didn't outright target Christians. He did end up being persuaded to do so by a Gellierus. So I was saying, this Gellierus you spoke about, why did it have to be convinced by him? Why was Diocletian so weary about going down this road of uh, persecuting the Christians and persecuting others? That is harder to tell, mm. but I can definitely tell you that it's not hard to extrapolate a very plausible political motive for it. So in the case of Diocletian, we're talking about an emperor who has effectively turned himself into living God status. This is a new thing for the empire, because prior that used to be a really big cultural taboo. But Diocletian, of course, goes away from that. And he very much looks towards Rome returning to its great state as an empire. And that one of the ways that they even got there was because of their relationship to the Roman gods. And he very much extols and promotes this Roman pagan and Hellenistic set of gods and religion by a very far mark, which is interesting in and of itself. And so in terms of that, it makes sense that he would want to, one, obviously promote this religion that he so very much considered to be absolutely necessary in terms of the aggrandizement of Rome and it returning to its great status and remaining favorable with those gods, in addition to the political realities of it being consistent with that policy, that I very much, who am directly connected and right there with so many of these various gods around me and those things that I've considered very important for the entirety of my reign, that I wouldn't want anything to get in the way of that. And the fact of the matter is Christianity, for all intents and purposes, would be in the way of that, especially when you start considering the upper echelons of Roman society, even though he had no use for, say, the Senate or the senatorial class, they still were on the upper rung of society, are now buying into this themselves. So naturally, he has a multitude of reasons to want to do this. But more than anything, it has to do with his image as making Rome return to this great state. And part of that has undeniably been the piety and fealty that one gives to the Greco-Roman gods. But the thing is, in terms of his desire to go there, he's obviously very, very hesitant because he's dealing with enough problems already. Remember, he gets very much credited, as, as we mentioned many times, for getting Rome out of the crisis of the third century. You guys thought we were done talking about Diocletian. Uh -uh. <laughs> he does make a brief showing here. <laughs> yeah, just a brief one. By whipping up an official persecution is undeniably 
a good way to introduce, I should say, a destabilizing element to the Empire, which is the last thing he wants, to be sure. And so ultimately the way he ended up deciding to move forward, at least this is how the story goes. Qualifier, this is how the story goes. Whether it happened like this or not is anybody's guess. It may very well be unknowable. But he decided to going to one of the temples of Apollo to basically sound this one out. And his feelings were, after that experience, it was time to go ahead on this route, which he most certainly did. And the way he did it, and it's interesting because it all kind of happens under a very short period of time, almost a little over a year in many respects, is that it created a number of edicts that really hampered Christianity's ability to function. In fact, he gave four edicts over the year in question of 303 AD. And possibly the most notable of these edicts at this point is what they call the first edict from February 303. It proclaimed that the Nicomedia Christian Church would be burned along with any other religious artifacts of significance with it. And this was something that was very much then perpetrated more so to all sorts of the Christian establishments eventually through the empire. Mm. And it's interesting to note that officially Diocletian wanted this edict to be enforced, quote, without bloodshed. <laughs> but are you serious? I mean, are you serious, Diocletian? I can't imagine this could possibly be done otherwise. I mean, that is what they like to call building castles in the air. Let's burn down a church and all the artifacts within it, but let's not draw any blood, guys. Come on, we're not savages. We're not savages. No, we're just arsons. <laughs> a very strange distinction, to be sure. Bizarre. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it went for the ability of Christians to worship, various clergy to operate. And also, interestingly enough, and this is really kind of where it hits below the belt, it also went after Christian landowners and their ability to continue owning land. Then you had what we call the Second Edict, which happened, as far as I understand, about four months later. And so this Second Edict of Diocletian effectively sought to imprison all Christian clergy and as such began to arrest those clergies. And according to Eusebius of Caesarea, who ended up becoming bishop from Caesarea, and he might even <laughs> become a saint, I'm not 100% sure, at least in his area, so we're talking Syria for the most part, that's where Caesarea is, we're mm. talking about the same Caesarea, the Roman prison system, at least as far as he was and where he was, couldn't handle the influx of newly arrested Christian prisoners. It created a logistics issue. They couldn't imprison them all. My goodness. If only they had discovered Australia sooner, Paul. So that's really oh, mean God, British humour there. That is, that is so dark. That is so dark. <laughs> I just saw Australian viewers. Sorry. Yeah, Huge apologies. No, no, hey. <laughs> Cheers to Australia. Americans Bigger love sports. Australia. And we, we love Australia as well, Britain. Oh, Britain yeah, loves Australia as absolutely, well, Absolutely, absolutely, as the mother country. <laughs> and then we have what we like to call the Third Edict, which apparently happened on 20 November of 303 AD. This hasn't even been in the works now for a year. Mm. In this, he proclaimed a general amnesty for imprisoned Christian clergy. But here was the caveat. So long as they repented and specifically, again, publicly made sacrifice to the Roman pagan gods. But as you can imagine, not every imprisoned Christian was on board with this pair the usual. Once again, according to our friend Eusebius, 
given just the incredible influx of prisoners in these prisons, there were a lot of jailers who were happy just to see them go. So why was there this change of heart by Diocletian? Why did all of a sudden he wanted amnesty for the Christian clergy? Well, I imagine because it created a severe logistics problem in one, in one way. Yeah. Two is you have to imagine also once again that he was extremely weary of introducing destabilizing elements mm. to the empire, which is definitely something that would be very counterintuitive for him because stabilization was very much number one on his priority list, as we have talked about in so much detail in the past. But once again, not all the Christians were on board with this. And it's hard to know precisely why he had that change of heart. But man, in general, that also had to be very hard to enforce. And it wasn't even enforced on an equal basis everywhere in the empire. Constantinius, who was very much part of the greater power arrangement at the time, who's actually also the father of one we know as Constantine the Great, wasn't really big on this either. But for the most part, the places, for example, where it was not nearly as harsh as Diocletian had originally set out for it to be are places like Britannia and Gaul. But there are other places that are far more draconian in its application. It's just kind of the nature of it. It's very hard mm. to have that kind of sweeping general policy enforced with the same vigor throughout such a large empire where communication was so difficult. I was wondering what was happening up, up in Britain. Like, was this happening here as well? Like, just how do you get that message across Yeah, in such a short amount of time? Like, it's not even been a year. How do you do that? And clearly, they didn't do it too well. No, and not even everybody in his inner circle was on board with this. Mm. Like the case we're talking about Constantinius. And then we get to the fourth edict early in 304 and not long before Diocletian says, it's been fun. Thank you for all the fish and steps down into <laughs> retirement. And this fourth edict was building on the need to sacrifice. And the fourth edict demanded that all men, women and children who followed Christianity were to gather en masse in public and openly sacrifice to the Roman pagan gods as a whole. And this is something I know for a fact that you're going to be getting into on a bit more local level in your next segment when you start talking about the amazing topic of San Marino. Yeah. So something I want to ask as well quickly, Paul, is when you talk about sacrifice, obviously we all know what the word sacrifice means, but do you know what was being sacrificed? And this was it human? Was it animal? What was going on here? Mostly animal sacrifices, as I understand it. Sheep, pigs, ox, kind of common animals that were more or less the way it was going at the time. And I also mean libations, and by libations, I do in fact mean booze who are not familiar with the term. <laughs> but ultimately, this does interfere with a lot of aspects of Christianity, and obviously a lot of Christians were not that big on this. But the amazing part about this persecution under Diocletian, which is far more systematic, and there's a far greater documented and consistent policy in terms of what he intended to happen, it's short-lived. Because for the most part, not too long after him, he steps down. One, Constantine the Great is going to come into power. And the game is going to change irrevocably, where there's no going back in the case of the Roman Empire. Something I find so interesting about this, Paul, um, we, we talked about how well Rome were on taking on board other cultures' ideas. We talked as, yeah, as it expanded into North Africa or into Northern Europe, into Britain. They didn't really make people stop doing their own culture. They let their own culture carry on. I said, like, just pay your taxes and be good. We will interact with you. But Christianity just seems like the one thing they couldn't let lie. They couldn't just let Christianity just 
be its own thing, like so many other things they let do in the empire. And part of me wonders, is that because Christianity emerged from the empire? It wasn't a religion that they picked up as the empire expanded. It formed within the empire. Maybe that ticked them off. That's just something I was thinking about, that how they just didn't let Christianity just be like how they let so many other things outside of their culture that ended up being part of the empire just be. In all fairness, you have to add Judaism to that list. Of course, and Judaism too, yeah. It's just a very similar situation with Judaism as well going on Yeah, there. they have also, like the Christians, a very precarious relationship with the Roman state. There was a reason we watched Life of Brian. Yeah, one, of, <laughs> one of the many, to be sure. Like I said, it's a strange relationship, and it's not a consistent one. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it was it boiled down to the issues that come inherently with Christianity or Judaism, where you can't put a God before the God of Abraham, the God that would be of Jesus, certainly the God that Jesus was speaking of, and it's an inherent conflict. Some are more willing to pay lip service. Others are willing to die in favor of their beliefs pretty consistent with a lot of religions that are undergoing some sort of external pressure in that case. There's always going to be some that are willing to make compromises, and there's some that are not, of course. But why couldn't they leave them alone? Because at over time, they just start getting bigger and bigger. You couldn't look them over. And, you know, Judaism obviously experiences some similar issues, though by no means identical. And any time that an emperors or those on a local level, probably that they felt some sort of threat towards it, because at the end of the day, when it comes to Christianity, that first commandment, though nothing is truly formalized at this point in terms of Christianity's relationship to the Old Testament, it still very much factors in. So they were a very poor coupling, to be sure, depending on what the goals of the Roman state were, and more particularly, how this ended up bearing out more so on a local level. And of course, once again, the Jews have their issues with it, and that cannot be overlooked. So I really do think that's probably the best answer I can give you. But they're about to get the biggest boost that they've received since the death of Jesus of Nazareth in mm -hmm. a way that's going to launch this religion into the stratosphere of, in any case, historically significant profile and meaning and significance for many centuries to come, well into the present day at the time of recording this episode. Yeah, what's going to happen affects the reason me and you, Paul, both come from primarily Christian countries. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of countries and countries still on our planet, that does bring us quite neatly into my segment of today's episode, Paul. It certainly does. And where I'm going to leave off is here. I think it was important to get a better taste of exactly how this all broke down because it's not exclusively a top-down thing. It most certainly is not exclusively a bottom-up thing, but in many cases it is more of a bottom-up thing, and that at the end of the day, it just got so popular and eventually started permeating higher portions of Roman society. There's no way it could be ignored, but there is no one policy, there is no one instance, and that for the most part, as I understand it, the most systematic and official policy towards them ends up happening under Diocletian, but for the sake of Christians of the time, they are going to get relief in the extreme not too far down this road. But yes, very much looking forward to your next segment, but in our next segment, Patrick, we have a Patreon submitted question in our famous middle segment. Very exciting stuff, Paul. So we will get on with that and we'll talk about my segment, of course, we'll talk about the middle segment, our great yes. question. But of course, first... 
A few words from the voice of AD herself, Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. And thank you very much, Anna. Now, Paul, we are at our famous middle segment where we answer a question submitted by one of our patrons. And the question we were submitted this time isn't so much about one specific historical event, but more about history in general. And that question was, when can a event start being considered history? And when I heard this question, it got me thinking, and it specifically got me thinking about a somewhat recent historical event in the form of 9-11. 9-11 recently had its 20th anniversary, and that got me thinking how there's actual 20-year-olds alive on our planet now, 20, 19-year-olds. By that age, you're kind of a fully-fledged human, more or less. You're still quite young, but like, there's people alive on our planet now who are adults who weren't alive when 9-11 happened. To them, it is literally a historical event. It wasn't something they lived through. And that's kind of my take on the matter. It's when we get to a point in which there's enough adults alive, commentators, people with opinions who weren't alive when the actual event happened. And that's kind of the 20-year mark. It definitely is one of the most provocative questions that we've been posed by one of our patrons so far. It's a very heady one, to be sure. And when I first read that question, because it was truly outstanding, the first thing that started rattling around my brain is an adage, which is that journalism is the first draft of history. And if that doesn't get you feeling a certain sense of responsibility for how one undertakes their journalistic activities, I'm not entirely sure what would. But that's really the thing that first started getting to me. And I think it's also important, even though we've done this in the past, because you never know. You who may be listening, wherever and however you may be listening, may not have heard us talk about this in the past, and you really have to bifurcate the difference between history and the past. And in this case, the past is something that are events that are entirely unable to be physically, palpably reconstructed, and that history is the work by those who focus on those particular events, go and try to document them with whatever their emphasis or methodology may be. So when I start thinking about that, I start thinking to myself, yeah, yeah, journalism, first draft of history. I feel like there really needs to be a little bit of psychological distance in regards to how most people understand what they call history, which in many cases they both interchangeably call the past and history history, regardless of the fact that they are indeed two separate things. So that's really where I started on the subject. And at the end of the day, that's kind of how I would think about it. Yeah, you're right. 20 years, if you're 20 years old on this planet right now, chances are that you didn't live through, for example, an event like 9-11. It's as real to them as Pearl Harbor is to you and I, mm. which is kind of an interesting thought. And well, not as much for you because you're British, but as an American, it's as real to me as would be as real to me as Pearl Harbor. And interestingly enough, from 
one of our listeners that we've heard of from before in the past, which of course is James from Wisconsin. And this bit is what he had to say, quote, I think a past event becomes history when it loses its recency. Like I said, hard to explain. Essentially, memory is a tricky thing. So while you know the difference between things happening a day ago and a year ago, they both can fall under the banner of recent because you feel it in your mind. It becomes history as time moves forward and your mind slowly removes older things from the recent banner in a way that you don't notice until you think back about it. And that direct connection you feel in your mind just loosens ever so slightly that it stops being recent. And then you think about it and it'd be like, oh yeah, I guess that was a little while ago at this point. Does that make sense? I hope it does. But this is a more of an indicator than it is a direct answer. And it doesn't necessarily refer to direct moments in history all the time, but if there is a revival of a fashion trend or a media property or people hosting, quote, historical event-based parties, then you know the ship has sailed. And it is history because people are celebrating it as such. Close quote. And I remember when I first read that from James in Wisconsin, I thought that was actually a very good way of putting it a very practical and accurate way of putting it in many ways. What are your thoughts, Patrick? I think it's a really good way of explaining it and kind of focus on how you have to have that sort of distance and detachment from the event itself. And yeah, I fully agree with everything they said in that bit. Really good stuff. Absolutely. And it also yeah. reminds me of that old South Park bit about something <laughs> isn't funny unless it's been, what, like 22.8 years that you're allowed to joke about it. <laughs> That's a little something that's always floating around in my mind sometimes. Yeah. But insofar as it goes, it actually does kind of play out as they have mentioned it there, which is, of course, part of the beauty of South Park is they have a way of hitting on certain truths that, well, in many ways, many of us would not. And in a way, none of us would ever consider hitting on it. But once again, Matt Stone, Trey Parker to the rescue. They're very, very clever people. So in regards to what is history, do you think maybe... We're talking about how like detached and separate you have to be from things. Can history be different depending on who you're talking to? Like what is defined as a historical event? Like you're saying what we might define as a historical event, other people might not because they live through it. And that's an interesting thing to think that not history isn't history to everyone. There's definitely a revolving door sliding scale depending on who you're mm. talking to. Naturally, something like the Vietnam War means a lot mm. more to those who had experienced it either being there or on the home front and everything that certainly entailed. Or, for example, something like 9-11, which is something that both you and I lived through. Granted, I was older, mm. so I have clear memory and also being much closer. Mm. But yeah, I definitely think so. I definitely think distance is very important. It's a psychological thing, that mm. distance, before yeah. we can start looking at it that way. And yeah. even you and I, for someone who lived through an event like that, we can look at it as a historical event, but it will never truly be a historical event like it will be for others who did not experience yeah. it. So they may have some objectivity that we lack simply because we were there at the time. That's a very good way of putting it. So, And you're saying how there's a difference between the past and history. So you said, in that hypothesis, not everything that happened in the past is history. Am I correct in saying that? Like, so me, my, me eating breakfast yesterday, that was in the past, but it's not a historical event. <laughs> 
not unless somebody ends up doing a biography of you in all likelihood, <laughs> or you start doing your memoirs or you have an autobiography or something, as far as I know. So that's always been kind of my understanding, because just because something happened in the past doesn't necessarily mean that it's historically significant to become hmm. part of a history in whatever subject that's supposed to entail. So unless we start getting unauthorized biographies of Patrick Foote, it's unlikely you sitting down for breakfast the other day or sitting down for tea at some point in the last 10 years that it will become historically significant and become part of a history. So it's interesting because becoming part of a history sounds pretty precarious because then it's really out of your hand, the one who lived it and experienced it. And I think that's a great term, out of your hands. I think that is when history is created, when it's being di dissected and talked about by people who weren't involved in it. When history is basically when it's out of the, the person who made those events' hands, when it's being talked about by others. I think that's one of the other key factors here as well. And the other thing, and I don't mean to get back on the soapbox about <clears throat> history and history and context, but talk about it being outside of your hands. This is something that just occurred to me. Say there was a time traveler who visited us from several centuries in the future, and they went to you and I and started espousing all these various elements about 9-11 and what happened and what the course of action was and all of that. And they start really going at you about it. I would believe that most people that lived through it have a cogent memory of it and were able to process it on an adult level at the time chances are their retorts to a lot of the points that would be made would be, especially if they're asking questions, well, you had to be there at the time. Mm. Because we so often forget, easily so, if you're doing history with the benefit of hindsight, which we try to avoid if possible and take that more perspective view, is that if you were there at the time, you had no idea what the consequences long-term in the greater picture we're ultimately going to be. You have to treat mm. it as, well, yeah, that may all seem well and fine if you have centuries of hindsight looking back and you're able to see the entirety of the spectrum from the consequences that various actions were taken. But if you're there at the time and you were dealing with somebody from the distant future and then bringing up all sorts of different points, ultimately, I think most people would probably say, if they're trying to be as objective about it as possible, well, you had to be there at the time. Yeah, that's another great way of putting it. Well, what I will say is this. I think there are many ways mm. one could try and describe this particular phenomenon. Mm. And the one I think, at least for me personally, I've kind of landed on is when somebody goes back and is examining all of this down the road and you're still alive and they start asking you about it and what happened and why, it really is history when one of your first responses would be, well, you had to be there at the time. Do you think there's any validity in saying that you don't know history is happening as it's happening? Like, you're saying you had to be at the time, like, Ooh. maybe sometimes you aren't aware, like, another good thing is you don't realise history's being made until a few years down the line, oh, actually, that was quite a significant moment I lived through. I mean, there's some examples like 9-11, like uh, Pearl Harbor, you know, this is this is going to be a big deal, but some things are a bit more of a slow burn. And it's almost like with COVID, to go back to the pandemic we're living through, when that sort of first began, I don't think quite any of us knew what a big deal it would be. And that sounds ridiculous now. And that's a great, you had to be there at the time moment. If you look back at COVID, people are going to be like, you didn't realize this was going to happen? Like, no, we didn't. We genuinely didn't. 
Yeah, it's interesting because this very much plays into the question we were asked almost a month ago through Patreon mm. about when in our lives we began noticing major historical events and mm. realizing them contemporaneously at the time. And what you mentioned there is interesting because as I mentioned at the time, I was texting with my brother and when I believe it was late March when all the major league sports were shutting mm. down and postponing the starts of their season, we began to realize, oh, oh God. This is a thing. This is a historically significant moment. But if you were to go 100 years in the future and look back on all of that, you may very well come to the very unfair conclusion. Maybe <laughs> not unfair. Who knows? But it could feel that way based on how we were perceiving it with the information that was available to us publicly at the time that you had to be there because we had no idea how big this would be or what this would change or how the fact that this would turn our world upside down. So I think that is an outstanding point on your part, Patrick. Got there in the end. My mind went blank for a moment, but I got back to it. <laughs> you always get to it. So we'd like to thank our patron for submitting that amazing question. We, Of course, we also want to thank James from Wisconsin. And if you have some sort of contribution that you wish to share with us, you can always email it to us or send it on the socials whether it be commenting or in a tweet or in a DM. But if you want to send it by email, because it's a bit more verbose, you can always reach us at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Once again, that's adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. And of course, this is our famous middle segment for the Patreon submitted question. And if you really wish to help out the show and make the AD history you deserve, and you want to submit a question of this nature, donate to the AD History Podcast at patreon.com slash AD History Podcast on the $5 tier or higher to be able to submit your question that we will answer in our famous middle segment. It can be about anything in history, specifically history we've covered, what is happening in Patrick and I's professional life. All of that is very much in play, and we thank our patron for doing that. In addition to the fact that if you donate at the $3 tier or higher, you get new episodes 48 hours early before their public release. And if you're listening to us on one of the podcast apps or podcatchers of your choice, you get a special Patreon RSS feed so that the episode reaches you 48 hours early, in addition to it being the Patreon Director's Cut, which is a bit more in-studio feel, has some additional content, is a whole lot of fun. But most importantly, anytime at whatever level you choose to contribute to us on Patreon, it helps out the show immensely. We could not do it without you. Thank you very much for submitting that question. And us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. And as always, thank you, Anna. Patrick, this particular piece of history that you are about to present to all of us waiting with bated breath and anticipation is about history that I think the vast majority, certainly myself, as well as our listeners, know nothing about. About a country that we've all certainly heard of, but don't really know that much about. A microstate, the oldest constitutional republic, or at least they seem to claim that it is, in our history, certainly of the Western world, to be sure, and that is the country, and more importantly, its founding, and its very interesting story and how it weaves into a whole bigger picture that we've been talking about, of the microstate San Marino, located in what we know today as Northern Italy. And I think that's fantastic, Patrick. I think that is fantastic. So with that in mind, Mr. Foot, Sir Patrick, you have the floor. Thank you. Paul. So, yeah, this is the first time in AD history 
we can confidently say that a nation still on our planet to this day exists, like borders and all. And this is, of course, as Paul mentioned, San Marino. Like I said, this age does not go unrecognized, and by many, including San Marino themselves, obviously, it is considered the oldest surviving republic. And it's hard to argue before we uh, did this pool. We're just a little behind the scenes fact here. Before we started recording this segment, we just went. No, when was it really founded? Everyone says it was founded in 301 AD, but when 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 did it officially become a nation? Yeah, when maybe... was it something that we would recognize as yeah. a nation? And it doesn't exist. It literally is 301. There, there, there were some periods of history. It became independent from the papal state in the 12th, 13th century. There were kind of bits like that, but it doesn't have a more uniformed founding date. And Paul, not, not all countries do have a neat founding date. It would be easier if they did but some have just existed for a darn long time. Just remember this. Even John Adams thought that what we consider today Independence Day should actually be on the 1st of July, not the 4th of July, because (laughs) that grand picture where you see all these delegates signing it is an utter fiction, because in John Adams' own words, they were running in and out secretly from Philadelphia throughout the entire summer signing the thing. So it's (laughs) never as quite as concrete as sometimes we may think it was but do go on no so of course this is with san marino it really is that old like it's officially founded as seeing as being in 301 ad so right at the start of this season 301 ad it was there but you might even be wondering what on earth is san marino and i wouldn't be surprised if you hadn't heard of it while i'm calling this a country That's quite a liberal use of the term country. And this is a tiny, this is a micro nation. And this small nation, as mentioned, as Paul mentioned, is completely within Italy. And it resides in the north of the country, about 13 miles off the Adriatic Sea. And its closest big Italian cities are Florence and Bologna. And it has a land area of just under 24 miles square. And to put that into perspective, Greater London, so not just the little city of London, Greater London as a whole, is 606 miles square. So this is a tiny little nation. But it's a real behemoth when you compare it to something like Vatican City, which, if my research and information is accurate, it weighs in at <laughs> 0.19 square miles. So 0.19 square miles. So it's a microstate, but it's definitely not the smallest in the Italian peninsula today. No, no, of course, Italy has its other micronation, the Vatican, and that is much, much tinier. That is much more living up to that term of a microstate, quite right, Paul, but 24 miles for a country is still pretty small unto itself, but definitely not that small, yeah. No, no. And so the nation's defining feature is Mount Tyano, which is now known as Mount Titan, Mount Titan today, and this mountain plays a really central part in its founding. And another thing of huge importance to this nation is a man by the name of Marinus, and he plays a pretty large role in the founding of this nation. Surprise, surprise, it's named after him. So it does beg the question, though, given everything that we've discussed so far, what date, specific date, is thought to be its founding? So its official founding, uh, we're not too sure most sources point to just 301 AD, but its official founding, its anniversary, its celebration day, I read as being the 3rd of September. So it's actually just had its birthday. I'm trying to do some quick maths in my head. About a month ago? Yeah, just over a month ago. So 2021, take away 301. 
Okay. 700 years old? It's just turned 700? That depends on what you consider to be the definitive date. Is it what our friend, the St. Marino, mm. did in terms of founding what we will discuss later? Or is it when they actually laid down a constitution and became a true sovereign constitutional well, republic? That's what I'm curious about. If, if we go from the 3rd of September, 301 AD, that makes San Marino, who's just had its 720th birthday. So happy 720th birthday, San Marino, if, if that is really the day you were born. Yeah, these things can be awfully tricky sometimes. Yeah. And speaking of unknown dates of birth, that takes us very nicely to Marinus. Of course, he would become St. Marinus, which would be translated into Italian as San Marino, hence this country's name. His birthday is unknown too, but the popular story is that he was a stone mason, so someone who worked with stone, building things, designing things, all that sort of stuff. And he was originally from an island called Arbra, which is now called Raab, which is a part of Croatia. So, of course, as I said, it, it makes sense that San Marino is so close to the Adriatic Sea because he's from the other side of that same sea. So he didn't get too far in Italy before he decided to make a country for himself. And it's believed he arrives on the Italian peninsula as he was summoned to work as a stonemason to help repair the city walls of a city called Rimini. And they had been destroyed by some pirates. So he was summoned from the empire to come help fix that. And of course, he was a religious man. He was specifically a Christian. And as you've covered Paul, Christianity was really on the up and up around this time in history, much to the chagrin of the Roman Empire to the likes of Diocletian, who we're going to talk about in a moment. And supposedly, while working in the quarry as a stonemason, he would preach Christianity. They called him a layman preacher, which, if memory serves, a layman preacher is someone who preaches, the, preaches Christianity but hasn't got any official capacity. So he wasn't a bishop or a priest or anything at this time. He was preaching as a member of the so-called unwashed masses. That, funnily enough, is a layman's term for it. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, we're, we're rolling today. We're rolling. And, of course, through this, he would gather respect and eventually become a clergy member so he wouldn't be a layman preacher anymore. And, of course, this all played into the founding of his nation. He was also known as a bachelor and respected because of this. Paul, you don't need me to tell you that. Being a bachelor, uh, not having your chastity, that's the word for it, chastity, and I thought that uh, only refers to sex, but that's just that's just my oh, interpretation. Maybe basically being being married to God, we will say, is highly respected in Christianity. Not being distracted by another, but by a spouse, things like that in Christianity. So he was mightily respected for being single. But that respect came to a halt, however, when a crazy woman claimed to be his estranged wife. That's the popular story. Yeah, and this is what gets interesting. Well, first off, to your point, in terms of abstinence. For priests. Ask the word abstinence. That's largely a Roman Catholic thing. You know, you won't find that in places like Protestantism and its various yeah, of course. sects. And, you know, as far as I know, even in the Eastern Orthodox Church, that's not something necessarily today that is required. But something I find interesting here when it comes to this accusation of this so called crazy woman that claimed she was his estranged wife. And it really kind of comes in two parts. One is, I'm curious if anybody has done any work to see how valid those claims were. And if she was truly crazy, as the story goes, 
why seemingly did so many people believe her? While you can't objectively conclude his self-imposed upcoming exile as a tacit admission of his guilt, it really does muddy the picture, doesn't it? Because was it merely the perception of impropriety, which can be just as bad as actual impropriety, true or otherwise, that forced his hand to do so? You have got to wonder, Paul, and it's just when you do research on San Marino, it's always just, a it's almost a throwaway sentence. No one seems to have done more digging into it. It's just a crazy woman claimed to be his estranged wife, so he had to flee. And uh, as I said to you, Paul, before we recorded, maybe she was telling the truth. Maybe she was his estranged wife and he did have to go into hiding. Yeah, you know, there may have been truth behind these accusations. You know, he was he was obviously trying to pull off a very specific image of himself that he enjoyed, where the various carnal urges would not in any way interfere with his relationship to God and preaching from the layman. And then this comes about. And it doesn't seem like he sits around and fight, at least as far as the general legend here is concerned. So... If she was that crazy, why did that many people believe her? It's not to say that people don't believe false stuff from bad sources all the time. We know this to be true, but it is something to ponder. Yeah, it really is something to ponder. And like like, like I said to you as well before you recorded, Paul, quite possibly it's just a story that's been added to this narrative to make it more embellished. Because obviously, as we've talked about, there's probably something larger at play, which meant someone who's Christian might want to go flee somewhere else. But these claims of being married to this crazy woman supposedly tarnished his reputation. So he did flee to live in a cave in Mount Tiano, as well as Mount Titan now, in 301 AD. And supposedly it was from this, the story of a San Marino and San Marino's origins began. It was here he built a chapel and a monastery and lived here as a hermit. And it was from here that the state of San Marino would bud around from this center and create what it is today. And there was more to it, however, as this was a time of history where it was not too good to be Christian, as you covered very well, Paul. I'm going to go over it again very briefly here. Diocletian was, of course, emperor at this time, and he was not too fond of Christians. So, And it was only be two years later in 303 AD where his infamous persecutions of Christians would commence. And of course, as Paul covered it, these are started on the 24th of February, 303 AD. He ordered his first edict that declared that places of worship specifically that one church and the scriptures be destroyed. He stopped Christians from assembling to worship. They had their legal rights removed and they were threatened with torture. And as the years went on, these edicts got more and more extreme. As you covered, Paul, they kind of relaxed as well, as long as Christians made uh, off, uh, ritual offers to the Roman gods. So suffice to say, this was a bad time to be Christian in Rome. That's what you need to know here. And while these uh, edicts were going on, there was, of course, this mountain with a monastery on it that was technically not Roman soil. It was almost a safe haven. It became the safe haven for Christians because they weren't technically on Roman ground. More people would hear the story of San Marino and his uh, and his monastery on this mountain on Mount Titan. And people wanted to go there. Christians would flee there to be safe from these edicts, to be safe from these persecutions. So it makes all the sense in the world. And it was from here that San Marino has actually stayed as the independent nation it has to this day. And What's interesting is that it's actually always sort of maintained that image of a safe haven throughout history. It began Amazingly life. so. 
yeah, it's, it began life as this safe little part of Italy where it couldn't be affected by the wider world. And it somewhat maintained that image, not perfectly, but it's somewhat maintained. And there's a fun little quote, and this is from Wikipedia. And supposedly when this refuge on this mountain was discovered, it was a sympathetic lady from Romini, that uh, city, San Marino, helped repair its walls. She actually owned this land and bequeathed it to the mountain dwellers. But she said that they should always remain united together. That's it. This is just a quote I found from Wikipedia. Might not be true. Go check it out for yourself. Don't trust Wikipedia. Trust Wikipedia sources. That should be another AD history ground rule and honorary ground oh, yeah, rule. Yeah, that's true enough. <laughs> true enough. As mentioned, over the years, San Marino has maintained this image as a safe haven. An example, during Napoleon's conquests in 1797, he actually refused to invade the micronation. And we know how much Napoleon loved invading countries, but he actually thought no, and he deeply respected its independence and offered to have friendship with the country. You know, it's interesting. I don't really want to get off here on a tangent about Napoleon, but something I do wish to point out here is that while some of his more infamous military campaigns, like, say, invading Russia, was most certainly on his initiative and he was the aggressor, of the six or seven wars of coalition, war was declared on him far more than he was declaring war on anybody else. So it's a weird thing when you stop and then you go to the actual accounting on Napoleon and you realize, oh, hell, he's more on the defensive, you know, mm. more or less would just say he's not the initiator of conflict than he was the one who ended up taking the initiative and bringing the fight to wherever he wants to go. But I do think it is quite fascinating that he said, no, no, we're not going to take San Marino. We're going to leave it alone. We're going to leave it alone. I would want to look more into that. Yeah, and I'm sure we will. Napoleon's a deeply fascinating figure, Paul. Oh, and goodness. We've still got some time before we start talking about him, but we'll get there. Trust me, we will get there. And Tangent over. Yeah, tangent over indeed. But following Napoleon, it, we had the Congress of Vienna in 1814 to 1815. And this was held to basically reconstitute political order within Europe after Napoleon Bonaparte's French Empire fell. And a lot of things are different. If you look at that map from the Congress of Vienna, the borders are very different to the borders we know for the land of Europe now. However, if you look very closely in Italy, you will see a small little circle in the northeast. And that's San Marino, and its borders are still there. This was a time where it could easily have just been merged. You know, oh, let's just make that one big country, just make all of that Italy or whatever. And as you've noted here, Paul, Italy wasn't a unified state between 1848 and 1871. But yeah, that was a process in and of itself. Exactly. But easily, San Marino during that process could have just been merged with many other things, but it wasn't. People respected San Marino's independence and its sovereignty and its sovereignty it it's easy people love a lot people like love an underdog sort of image like that and its independence and sovereignty goes back so far no one wanted to upset it like why would you want to upset little old san marino they've done nothing wrong well uh, based on the history of europe in the last couple hundred years it's still pretty much a miracle yeah yeah and they, they kind of remind me of the dog in a horror film like you don't ever kill the dog oh <laughs> why'd you do that oh oh <laughs> that is so true we have some but but San Marino here. is not the equivalent of the family dog, of course. When the First World War kicked off, even San Marino were drawn into the mix. Now, this is what's interesting. Most of the microstates of Europe tried to stay out of these bigger conflicts, to be sure. But I find it interesting in this one in particular, San Marino actually played a tangible role. Tell us a bit more about that. So yeah, San Marino played a pretty small role in World War One. 
Um, they took two groups of 10 volunteers and they joined the Italian forces in fighting on the Italian front. So they joined up with the Italian side of this, which makes sense. An entire nation surrounded by Italy. You wouldn't believe how awful fighting on that front actually was. That's a story for another time, but goodness, yeah, if you're ever interested in looking there. up the Italian front in the First World War when they were fighting with the Entente, oh my God, that was awful. I can imagine. And so it was two groups, as mentioned, two groups of 10 volunteers. That first group were combatants. But the second group were actually a medical corps, and they were operating a Red Cross field hospital. So San Marino played a very minor role in this. There was 20, 20 soldiers, 20 people all in all factored in to San Marino's First World War efforts. Though it remained a neutral ground in the second, and they actually took in 100,000 refugees during the Second World My War. My goodness. Yeah. That's eight times the nation's population at the time. Oh my goodness. I mean, what yeah. were the, like, who were these refugees? So I looked into it, Paul. You might be able to help me here because your, your, your knowledge of World War II is much stronger than mine. So I saw two groups of people were taking refuge in San Marino during World War II. The first of those being Jews, and you don't need us to explain why Jews were taking refugee in San Marino during no. World War II. However, also Italians were taking refugees that uh, refuge there. And Paul, I don't know if you know what like you said. Your, your your knowledge of World War II is much better than mine. What did Italians have to take refuge from? Obviously, minus Italian Jews. What did just normal Italians? What 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 possibly would they have been hiding from their home nation under? I mean, goodness, there could be any number of reasons one might choose refuge in that case. Well, you figure. This is an interesting thought, because for the second half of the war, they would have been almost completely surrounded by Axis occupation. Mm -hmm. So it could be any number of things. The Jewish equation in terms of refugees, I think, very much speaks for itself yeah, and speaks yeah. to the credit of San Marino. Mm. And as far as I know, there are other various micro states of Europe also did this to some degree, not not Luxembourg. If Luxembourg even is considered a, a micro nation in the same respect, it's, I think it's quite a bit larger than San Marino. It is, yes. But San yeah. but in the case of Luxembourg, Luxembourg was was occupied from 1940 onward. It could be they could be political dissidents. They could be you know various behind the lines kind of rebels or technically non combatants that mm. are fighting behind the lines. That sort of thing. Any number of reasons to be sure. And, you know, in terms of political dissidents, if you were against fascism, which obviously predates the Axis occupation of the area, that could be another reason as well. So credit to San Marino for taking in such an influx, you know, Godspeed. Huge amount of people. Thank you very much for sharing some light on there, Paul, in any way you know how to of your World War II knowledge. But that more or less brings us to San Marino today. And I imagine this will probably be the only time we talk about San Marino in the the lifespan of AD history. So I just want to go up to its modern day and what it's doing now. And today, San Marino does still like to claim it's the world's oldest still-going republic. And truth be told, it's hard to argue. I mean, you could argue like, yes, I guess Britain or like Italy to some extent has been in that way or even Egypt, but they're very different to what they are today. So I think San Marino have quite a good claim to being the oldest still-going republic. And its population, even today, its population still stands at 33. Three and a half thousand people, which is a lot, granted, but it's not the hundred thousand refugees that came in during World War Two. You know, anytime I start thinking about these modern microstates, first thing that usually comes to mind is woo, 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 
tax haven. Yep, you have hit the nail on the head, Paul, because they are a tax haven too. And it wouldn't be a micronation if they didn't meddle with money, would it, Paul? Because that's what these places are best known for. Uh, Unfortunately so, but obviously there's so much more to it than that. Of course, of course. People love micronations. They get a real kick out of going to them. Like I remember when I went to Rome myself, stepping into the Vatican City, it's kind of like, oh, I'm in a different country. It's just a silly little thing. And they very much capitalize on people like me getting excited about crossing over to other countries because they have their own stamps. They use the euro, but I was told they have their own coins. And they even like, of course, tourism from schmucks like me is their main source of income. But that's that's pretty much San Marino, guys. It's a fun little place. It was a real honor to just sort of dig into it because I said it probably won't play much of a story in the rest of AD history. But just to know that it came around from this time, I always love Paul when our segments intercross like this. San Marino wouldn't have come into existence if it wasn't for the treatment of Christians in the early 4th century. Yes. So it's interesting looking at modern San Marino because Mm. while they may use the euro, they're actually not part of the European Union. Oh, samesies. (laughs) Yes, 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 indeed. So... They're kind of like, I guess, a much bigger country where this would most certainly apply on a much grander scale would be a place like Switzerland, which is not actually part of the European Union, but is very heavily integrated with the European Mm. Union, if you kind of get what I'm saying here. Yeah. Which I think is actually really quite interesting, to be sure. And for the most part, even though it has its own visa policies, to, to some extent, it still has its own currency, has its own government and everything that goes along with that. And football team. Yeah, apparently so. Apparently so. Not not much of a huge pool to pick from, but you know what? I'm not I'm not UEFA. What can I say? But no, all of these microstates in Europe, they all have a really fascinating history, specifically when you get to the one point that I think is most salient and most interesting to most people, which is how the heck did it even happen? Yeah. How are you not absorbed into places like Italy or France or Germany or Belgium or Spain? You get the idea. Mm. It is a very unique thing. It's not unique to Europe. You know, there are other microstates that you think about Singapore, but I find that exquisitely interesting. And the fact that its origin point goes all the way back to the decade that we are currently covering in our show with a layman preacher who ended up getting run off due to allegations from a possibly estranged wife and then living there as a hermit and founding the monastery that in time over the centuries would turn into its own sovereign constitutional republic, which I believe, once again, that happened in the 1600s? 1600s, I believe, yes, the 17th century, yeah. So right around the birth of the true nation state that we see today when we look at a globe, specifically a political map. There being many different kinds of maps, of course. Yeah, it really does date back that far and credit to San Marino. One day we'll get there. I'm gonna make it. A, I'm gonna make it an aim in life to go visit San Marino. And most certainly we'll be back and seeing San Marino again when it formally becomes this sovereign constitutional republic. A good what, twelve or thirteen hundred years down the road in our show? Yeah, about that. Just. Onwards and upwards. It's, it's fun not talking. I mean, kind of talking about Rome still. I mean, San Marino's kind of talking about Rome, but next episode hopefully won't be as Roman inspired. I'm looking forward to exploring the wider world again because that third century, man, we got stuck into that crisis and it was fantastic to do. But I'm looking forward to seeing 
what else is going on out there. Absolutely. And as well as covering the huge revelation and boost mm. that Christianity yeah. is going to be hard to, to ignore see. that. <laughs> Couldn't ignore if we wanted to try. Us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domine. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, Thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.